Welcome to the Heal Podcast, where we believe God heals people in the way that brings Him the most glory and brings us closest to Him. Whether you've received healing, you're in the fight of your life, or you gave up on God a long time ago, you are welcome here. As you come to the table, listen with an open mind, knowing everyone's journey is unique, but pain is our common language. Hello, and welcome to the Heal Podcast. My name is Tara Bradham Denai. I am your host, and today's episode is incredible. But before we get there, I want to tell you about two things going on in the Heal ministry. One is that this Friday, we have a quiz coming out on our website that we have been working so hard on. I am incredibly excited for you to get to take it and see what it tells you about yourself. So we believe that the most important war being waged, the battles being fought, are not in the seen realm. They're in the unseen realm and what is going on in the kingdom of God. And we need you on the front lines. We need your gifts, your talents, the things that God has given specifically to you that no one else ever has had and no one else ever will have. Only you have that. And we need you to put on the armor of God and take your place in the front lines. So this quiz is designed to help you do that even because of your physical pain or limitation, not just in spite of it. So you get to find out what kind of warrior you are. You get a guidebook afterwards. It tells you your struggles, strengths, some quotes, a Bible verse, all of that to equip you to take your place in this battle. So on Friday, check that out at thehealministry.com. And while you're there, go ahead and sign up for the Spring Heal Retreat. That is going to be April 24th. So in just two weeks, we're not doing one in the summer because my husband and I are moving in the summer. So the next one will be the fall. So let's get in on this one. There is a message, there are breakouts, and there is worship. It is a power hour that will leave you refreshed and ready to take on wherever God is calling you. So check out both the Kingdom Warrior quiz and sign up for the Heal Retreat. It's $10 and I can't wait to see you there. Today, we are continuing on with the Autism Awareness Month in April, and our guest is Jennifer Noonan. She is the author of the book, No Map to This Country. I taught her son when I was a Spanish teacher, so when you hear this, I use the names of her children that she uses in the book to protect their privacy, so know that, and I want you to listen with an open heart and an open mind to this. I had Jennifer on because I believe that her perspective is needed in this conversation, that without it, our perspective is not fully rounded in the whole autism discussion. So I know it might be different than what you have heard before, but like our intro says, please listen with an open mind. I am praying and believing that at least one thing in this episode is going to be encouraging and helpful for you in your journey and that it will help us learn to love better. And that's what we're here for. So please welcome Jennifer Newton. Yeah, so Jennifer, today I just want to start off. So this is Autism Awareness Month is a special I'm doing on this podcast. And I think there's so many different perspectives on this. I'm having four different people who I know for a fact that some of you have opposite opinions about things. (laughs) So to start off, I just wanted to ask, is there any caveats that we should state for people to kind of take down the defense barriers before we get going? I mean, I suppose it's fair to say my stance is one of treatment. Certainly, you need to love people for who they are. You need to meet them where they are. But that doesn't mean that there's never anything that can be improved 
in the life of anybody, let alone someone with autism. So I don't, I don't think it's, it should be controversial to say, yeah, I think that we can work to improve some of these things. Mm -hmm. There is a lot of pushback often from people who are like, no, no, this is a gift and we need to accept it exactly as it is. And I think it's really strange that you don't see that with, say, schizophrenia or other diseases where people are like, oh, no, this is clearly something that needs treating. Yeah. And I, I've always been kind of curious as to why autism gets special pedestal treatment of like, no, 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 this is ideal and perfect and should never be worked on. So that's my stance. I know there's other parents who feel differently and that's totally fine. Yeah. I think there's room for everybody to have a different opinion, but I definitely err on the side of what can we do to make this person's life better? Not change yeah. who they are, but just give them an easier life. Yeah. And so now people know where you're coming from. And I really encourage people to keep listening, even if you're like, oh, I think this might be the opposite of what I think, because I just want people to hear all the sides. That's what I'm trying to do with this month. And so first off, is autism? That's a whole nother thing. So background, I taught your son, who's one of the main characters in this book, and I'm going to try really hard. I'll edit it out if I mess up. But I wrote really big Paul and Marie. So I use their names in the book. But Teachers were very often told to say on the spectrum and not even use autism. So even from the very name, I feel mm -hmm. like it's this, what do I even say? What's your opinion on that? Well, it is a very loaded word. I mean, we at one point had one of our very first professionals who diagnosed him said the A word because she just, she couldn't even say it, even though she was a medical professional who was telling me he had it. Mm -hmm. She was like, you know, parents are very nervous about that. And I get it. It is a very loaded word. It's a word that people have a lot of assumptions about. But at the same time, I think you get on this euphemism treadmill where you're always changing your terminology. And it gets to a point where you can't communicate effectively about what is going on with your child if you don't even know what language is going to resonate with that person. So we say autism. And even then there's discussion about, is it an autistic person or a person mm -hmm. with autism? And I've spoken to people with autism who have opposing opinions on that. They say, don't call me a person with autism, I'm autistic. And other people say, don't call me autistic, I'm just a person who happens to have autism. So, you know, I think definitely we all do our best to not offend anybody that we're personally interacting with. Mm -hmm. And if someone says, I prefer to use this terminology, I'll definitely use it. But it is very difficult to please everybody with your terminology yeah. all the time. Yeah. And I was like, man, I might be making some enemies doing this month on the podcast. But I think it's so important just to see because we're not getting anywhere not talking about it. Mm -hmm. And I just finished yesterday, I was reading through Harry Potter in Spanish. And so what you said, the A word, it reminds you like he who must not be named, right? And it's like, well, the whole thing is he was given so much more power because people wouldn't use his name, Voldemort. And I'm this like total nerd right now. But do you think that it gives autism more power almost when we don't say the name? They might. Yeah. I mean, I definitely think there's a refusal to look at it in general because a lot of parents view it as this kind of death sentence, mm -hmm. partly because they think and they've been told that there's nothing you can do to treat it. And so they don't want to hear that this is the path that they're irrevocably stuck on. And so there definitely is built up a certain stigma around we don't want to acknowledge that because if we do it brings all of these assumptions with it but if you don't talk about it you don't ever get to the point of hey actually some of these terrible things are treatable and you can actually improve your situation if you're willing to look at it honestly yeah this might be too early to ask this question but i'm looking at things i wrote from your book and you say autism is an epidemic of misinformation oh for sure so, so jumping into 
some of the things, maybe just briefly, and then we'll go deeper. What are some of these massive misinformation things that you found on this journey? Well, so one of the big problems is that doctors are not informed about a lot of the most recent studies. And so the doctors aren't giving you any information or simply telling you there's nothing you can do, put them in therapy, and they don't even really know what therapy means. They can't tell you what types of therapy there are or how to access them. They just say, oh, I know the answer is put them in therapy, end of discussion. And when you don't get answers from professionals, you turn to the internet, you turn to friends, you turn to people who have gone through it before. And that can be an amazing boon because you have the internet available and there is information out there that is amazing and good and is not being told by professionals. But there is also a lot of stuff, you know, anybody can put anything out there. Mm -hmm. And then the burden it becomes on the parent to figure out, well, what's true and what's not. And I've definitely seen some stuff where I hate calling anything out specifically because I yeah. know there's people who believe really firmly in a lot of this stuff. But like, I'll give you an example of one of the ways that I knew for myself, no, we're not going to try that versus this. Mm -hmm. There was a group that would resell supplements because there's a lot of stuff where it's like, it works for some percentage of kids, but not all. So try it. And if it doesn't work, okay, move on to something else. But now you have this, you know, two thirds full bottle of vitamin C or whatever. And you basically say, well, it didn't work for my kid, but it might work for yours. And people would sell them to each other mm -hmm. at discounted prices. It was just like Craigslist, but only for autism treatments. Mm -hmm. There was a set of treatments that came up at least once a week of somebody saying, I'm selling all of my collection of this particular protocol. And it was like 18 different bottles of things. And just the fact that I had seen so many people say, it didn't work for us, we're selling it. Mm -hmm. That alone, I was like, well, it, maybe it works for some, but the percentage that it works for is clearly very low because I see people selling it again and again and again. Whereas you would see something like digestive enzymes, for example, that did help my kids very much. Mm -hmm. You know, you would see that posted and within 20 minutes it was gone. That's definitely working for somebody if it's mm -hmm. sold very quickly and it doesn't come up that often. And that, you know, it's a very rudimentary way of trying to determine what to try. But when you have limited resources, you have to sort of figure out how to sort through the information yourself. Which you had, I mean, a book worth of a journey with. Yeah, for sure. And so I want anyone to read this book who's looking because hopefully they can save half of that effort by reading your journey. Let's go back to how did you start noticing... I guess starting with Paul, because your book is very much split into two different stories. So start with Paul. What were some of the beginning parts of that when you started noticing behavior and things? So, well, for a lot of autistic kids, there is a very clear regression point. For my son, that was not the case. He was a, quote, weird baby from very early on. I mean, it just he played this screaming game when he was maybe two or three months old, where he would just scream really loud and then stop and listen. And he was playing with his voice, but he would play this game all day long in public, anywhere. And so, you know, people would stare at us like, is he hurt? Is he crying? And I'm like, no, he's just playing the screaming game. And he had these weird physical things where like he would suddenly fling his body back really violently. And when he started to learn to crawl, he would not let his knees touch the floor. It was sensory thing. He just absolutely could not stand the feeling of anything pressing on his knees. And so he did this like little bear walk thing that at the time everyone's like, oh, look how cute it is. And it wasn't until later as sort of other experiences started to rack up that were like, oh no, that's a sensitivity thing. He's got sensory processing disorder, which was sort of the first thing they started saying, maybe he's got that because, you know, there were other things where he wouldn't let you hug him. He didn't want to wear long sleeves. He 
absolutely fought every second of brushing his teeth every night forever. That was just, you know, and you get the standard advice from parents of like, oh yeah, you just have to, you know, be calm and they'll get used to it. I'm like, no, he ha is not getting used to it. It's mm -hmm. been two and a half years and he still throws a absolute full on tantrum, kicking and screaming every single time the toothbrush comes out. And there's just no stopping of that. So it, it was sensory stuff in the beginning. We honestly didn't struggle with one of the big things that autism families often have, which is uh, speech delay. Mm -hmm. He was speech delayed, but we didn't recognize it because he used something called echolalia, where he is constantly repeating things that he's heard. And he made a way of communicating through echolalia, where he would recite entire scenes from television shows mm -hmm. to indicate that he wanted to do the thing that was happening in that show when those words were said. So he talked and, you know, at two years old, the pediatrician's like, does he, is he starting to make two word sentences? And I'm like, oh yeah, he speaks in paragraphs because I didn't understand that reciting a whole TV show didn't count as talking. That wasn't communication. And so that was probably something that delayed him getting diagnosed possibly later than he would have. Yeah. And then it's so heartbreaking to me because also, and I know that when I taught him, you'd already done so much work, but I mean, he's very, very smart. He'd be very glad to hear you say that. He is very smart, I will say. And so it's like he figured out a way. It's like they can't, he couldn't figure out how to communicate. So he, his brain figured out what he could use. Yeah, he which, made up his own way. Yeah. Yeah. And that's was so heartbreaking to me through the book because, you know, when later when you realize it's like he really does want to communicate, but it's almost like being trapped without a way to tell someone what's wrong. Mm -hmm. A lot of people say that's the cause behind a lot of the tantrums is this frustration of knowing what you want to say and the words just will not form in your brain. And that's very frustrating. It would be for anybody. Yeah. So then what were some of the other things that happened that led to an actual diagnosis? So we ended up, the first mention of it was my daughter had a nine month checkup at the pediatrician and he was there and he was behaving the way he always did in a doctor's appointment, which was he was hanging from the handle on the door, waving his body back and forth, kicking and screaming because he wanted to go home. And, you know, the doctor was kind of like, is he always like this? And I was like, oh yeah, no, he is. And pr I promise you, he never gets what he wants. This is not a learned behavior. He's just going to scream and that's how it is. And I sort of was casually lobbing these questions at her while she's mm -hmm. ostensibly looking at my daughter, talking about, you know, and he won't wear long sleeves and he has a lot of problems with a lot of different things. And she started asking me some more questions and she said, you know, I think he's got sensory processing disorder. I'm going to refer you to an occupational therapist. And at that point, we were just like, you know, okay, whatever is able to get him some kind of calmness. Because for us, it was a daily torrent of OCD behaviors and tantrums and just really hyperactive behavior. You know, we couldn't necessarily take him out to a public park because he would bolt for traffic at, given any opportunity. He thought cars and trucks were great. And the first thing he wanted to do was run into the road. And you could be like, oh, no, let's get on a swing. Let's go down a slide. And he's like, no. And he would just run for traffic. And to the point where you're just like, well, okay, then we have to load you in the car and go home because you're not interested in anything but running into traffic right now. And when we went to the occupational therapist, she immediately twigged that there was more going on. And within that first appointment, that was where we had that conversation of her basically saying he's on the spectrum, but I know a lot of parents are afraid of the A word. And I sort of went into this weird defensive position that I, I historically have in my life where I was just like, okay, I accept this information and we're going to start acting on it. Like there wasn't any sort of devastation or, or you know, surprise 
because I've just, in my life, I don't do that. I don't deal well with that. So I just sort of shut down and was like, okay, my son has autism. What are we going to do about that? Let's get going. And later on, there's sort of that weight sort of starts to get in into you and you start realizing the magnitude of it. And you actually have that moment of like, oh man, now I'm going to cry. Now I'm going to realize that our whole lives have been changed. But at the time I was just like, I'm not afraid of that word. Tell me what to do. Let's go. Yeah. Well, and then can you just speak to a mom who's listening, who you're glazing over this and it sounds hard, but I mean, the magnitude of that difficulty day in and day out that you faced. Oh yeah. And it is very, very hard. I gloss over it because it just becomes your life. And it also gets to a point where you try to explain it to other people and they don't get it. And you stop even trying because you say, oh, my son is having a meltdown. And they're like, oh yeah. You know, when my daughter wants to wear her favorite jacket, she'll stomp and start yelling. And it's like, no, no, you're not getting it because you know, a tantrum for him was really violent kicking and screaming for an hour. And it could happen not just because he wants to wear his favorite jacket, but because the birds are tweeting and he doesn't like it. Or he wants to turn all the faucets in the house on and you can't let him do that. I mean, and he was very, very strong. He didn't have, there's, a, there's some studies involved in this where there's inhibitions that don't, that don't exist or just aren't as strong in young kids on the spectrum, where they are much stronger than you would think a two or three-year-old should be. Because in that same way that like a mom suddenly finds the strength to lift the car off her kid, mm -hmm. that's sort of the mode they're in all the time. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, he would literally run around the house. He would take a recliner and shove the whole thing over and just laugh because it was for fun. And he would smear his own poop on the walls. Again, not to be misbehaving because he thought it was fun. It was just this constant melee in the house of running from one room to the next, trying to figure out what he could climb on or topple over or line up and then get really angry if you moved it out of line. And it just never stopped. It was yeah. absolutely relentless. Well, and also you say a big characteristic can be for those on the spectrum is a lack of awareness or a lack of caring about physical pain, right? Yeah. He really didn't seem like he felt physical pain. I would turn around and he would be bleeding, just blood running down his face. And we'd have no idea when it happened. And he would get upset because his face was wet and he didn't like that sensation. The pain didn't bother him, but the simple fact that he was damp was enough for a meltdown. It's very hard to teach a child, hey, don't touch the stove, it's hot, mm -hmm. when he touches it and burns himself and he doesn't care. There's no ability to teach someone who doesn't even understand cause and effect. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And things like timeouts and things like that. He didn't understand this punishment happened because of the thing I did. That cause and effect was not there mm -hmm. for him. It was, it's like trying to discipline a six month old baby. You can't, they don't get mm -hmm. it. Yeah. I just recently read a book called The Gift of Pain. And it's that whole thing of like, nothing is as effective as actual pain. But what do you do if someone doesn't feel pain? And he mm -hmm. actually worked with leprosy patients for almost his entire life. And he took away that stigma because people just thought that these limbs were falling off and they weren't falling off. They were being eaten by rats at night because they couldn't feel it or like all of these things. And it's like, man, we just don't understand for a podcast that deals with physical limitation and pain. Most people listening don't think of pain as a gift. Right. But it definitely can be in the right circumstances. Yeah. So for that mom who's like, oh my gosh, Jennifer, I get it. <laughs> I am at my wits end right now. Mm -hmm. What do you say to her? Because I think you do an incredible job. <laughs> I've read your book twice now because I read it once as trying to get to know my student. And then I was like, ah, I need to really read that from like a podcast interview perspective. And it's great. I love it. The writing's incredible. So 
I mean, you really want to give up, but you can't. I mean, it's and then you have an incredible love, too. I mean, what, what do they do? Yeah, I mean, part of the deal is I was very afraid of the future. And I've talked to a lot of moms who are like, oh, man, it's awful. I'm with you. I see how bad it is. But I feel like he's going to get more mature. I feel like it is going to get better. Like the terrible twos are worse with autism, but he's not going to be in diapers forever. And it's like, well, you know, actually, I do know some kids who are in diapers forever. And I really don't think you are long-term understanding what this is going to look like if you don't try to do something. Mm -hmm. And the biggest heartbreaker for me is when you see a parent who's in denial, who's like, well, they say he has autism, but I think he's fine. And it's like, well, by the time you acknowledge that he's not fine, you're going to have missed a really crucial treatment window. Mm -hmm. But it was that fear that drove me to say, I don't want this to be my future. I'm going to do everything I can to, quote, fix this thing. And I didn't have any reason to believe it was fixable. I just decided it had to be because I didn't want this future that I had staring me in the face. Yeah. I can tell you exactly what I did. The biggest takeaway I would say is get online and start talking to other moms. You know, you don't have to take my word for it. I'm a, I'll happily tell you everything that we did. But the biggest thing I think is to have that desire to find information. Be willing to go out and look for it. You don't have to take my word for it, but go talk to other parents who have kids on the spectrum who are eight and nine and 15 and see what they've said, see what their life has been like, see what their experiences have been. Because the doctors, they don't know. They, unless they have an autistic child themselves, they don't know what the future holds for you. And there's so much variety within mm -hmm. the spectrum as well. But then also you talk about, I think, three different groups that you tried. And the last one was really good. And I think online you found stuff, but there are some groups that you found weren't really helpful either, right? So like keep trying or find the one that works for you. Yeah, absolutely. And if something doesn't work for your kid, don't be like, well, all the things don't work then. Say that thing didn't work for my kid. Let's try something else. Always be trying new stuff. It takes an incredible amount of perseverance. And I think you would say stubbornness. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> I have been called stubborn on more than one occasion. <laughs> yeah. So take us through the digestive stuff. When you start trying that, I think the spoon chapter is really mind blowing. Yeah. Well, so one of the themes that I kept picking up on as I was just reading all these blogs and reading advice from all these different parents, suggesting different things. But one of the key things that resonated with me was this idea that for gluten and dairy specifically, there are opioid receptors in the brain and that the shape of the molecule for both gluten and dairy precisely mimics the shape of the molecule for heroin. And if you have a leaky gut, if you have damage in your gut and gluten and dairy get out into your bloodstream, they literally go into your brain and they act as if you were on heroin. They attach to the same receptors. There is the same kind of effect on you. And if you think about what would happen if you gave a child heroin every day from the time they were born, you might end up looking a whole lot like a kid with autism when he was two or three. Mm -hmm. And one of the specific things about my son's behavior was he was addicted to cheese. And, you know, I like cheese. So I was like, oh, he's like, you know, chip off the old block. Like mm -hmm. he loves cheese too. Who doesn't love cheese? But for him, he would eat anything. He was a really great eater. I could be like, oh, you're going to have these Brussels sprouts. If you eat this first, you get a bite of cheese. And he was like, okay. He would do anything for cheese. And if we ran out, full on meltdowns until we were at the store buying cheese and he could eat it immediately. And we had joked specifically, oh, he's a cheese addict. And I'm reading all these sites that are talking about it's a literal addiction. You know, you truly are addicted in the same way that you're addicted to heroin, to cheese, if you have these problems. And that just really resonated with me. And they said, here's what's going to happen. 
if you try to take away cheese, you are going to see a junkie going through withdrawal for three days. And you need to be prepared for that because he is not going to stop screaming for three days, the same way someone who is addicted to heroin would not stop screaming for their heroin. And they said, if his behavior gets that much worse when you take it away, that is the surest sign that you're doing the right thing. Hmm. And I, to this day, I still talk to parents who, and I'm saying like, you know, you should really try removing gluten and dairy from their diet. And they'll say, well, that's all he eats. I'm like, I know Mm -hmm. that's why he has to get off of it. That is exactly the draw that he is attached to these foods. And it's Mm -hmm. not easy for sure. We had, we did it over a weekend because we knew it's just going to be a nightmare. It's like a lifestyle change. I mean, it's, I think a lot of people don't want to do it because they're like, well, you're telling me that I have to change the way I cook. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and we did, we truly had to get it out of the house entirely because he yeah. could hunt it down. There was just a mind blowing thing that happened where probably like two or three months in, we were really like getting into our groove. It hadn't been in the house. We were seeing these huge changes like the spoon conversation, which I'll tell you if you want. Yeah. But he, I walked into the bathroom and he was sucking on his shampoo bottle. And this was not a kid who mouthed on things. He was like three and a half at this point. And I was like, what is he doing? And I took it and I started looking at the ingredients. And one of the ingredients in the shampoo was dairy as a moisturizer. And the thing was, they told me online, this will happen. They had stories of kids licking sunscreen off their own bodies. They had stories of kids eating their mother's makeup because they were trying to get that fix of gluten and dairy. And we threw that shampoo bottle away, got a different one. He never tried to eat his shampoo again. But I was like, I, you know, they said it would happen. And I just, I was like, okay, they got to be exaggerating. It's the internet. Like, come on. And it truly happened. And I was absolutely mind blown. But you get those mind blowing moments that say, you know what? You're on the right path. Mm -hmm. If they were right about this, what else are they right about? Let's keep going. And yeah, the spoon conversation was also a big thing that let us know we were doing the right thing. Mm -hmm. Basically, he had this ritual every morning where he would come down and have his Cheerios and milk. And we had these little colored toddler spoons. They were plastic. And he would hold up his spoon and go red, red red, red. And he would say the color of his spoon 15 or 20 times before he could start eating. And I had to participate. I had to be like, yep, that's a red spoon. You got it. It's red. Wow. You know your colors. Let's eat. And he's like, red. And I'm like, yep, it's red. And it would just go on forever. And it was super frustrating. (laughs) Then two days off of dairy that morning, he came down and he got in his seat and he picked up his spoon and he goes, this is a red spoon. And then he started eating. And I, I thought I'd hallucinated. Mm -hmm. I was like, what did you just say? And he laughed. He, uh, you know, like, he was like, Map, I'm eating my cereal now. And he had never said anything approximating a sentence before. Mm-hmm. Like this is, uh, none of that ever had come out of his mouth. And I went and like woke my husband up and told him, I was like, your son just said, this is a red spoon. And he was like, mm, I, you know, I don't think he really said that. I'm like, I swear to you, he did. And this is absolutely astounding. And you're never having dairy again. This, mm-hmm. you know, we were not sure up to this point, but now- <laughs> it's done forever. Mm -hmm. And that was the first real moment that I thought maybe these people are onto something. You know, I sort of suspected and was like, well, we'll give it a shot. But this was this like, just, yes, we absolutely are on the right track for him for sure. Yeah. And I think part of the reason I'm was more willing to believe a lot of this experience. I think some people might be very defensive hearing these things because it's so new, but because I had been through everything with my shoulder, I had been through my own food thing and I had crazy withdrawals when I took dairy out of my diet, mm-hmm. it, like crazy. And then I, you know, now go to a holistic doctor who's helped with digestive stuff. And, but it took me seven years 
before I went to those kinds of doctors. And so I'm learning to say, you know, it's okay. I really think we need a mixture, right? Like of all kinds of medicine, but you know, it's okay if you're not there right now and you're like, this is a little much for me, but I also think truth is not relative. And it's like, you know, this is like, okay, well, if this is really happening and maybe all these things don't work for every single kid on the spectrum, but what if some of them did? Mm-hmm. And that's like your process. You're just finding out more and more things. Like I can't deny what I just saw him say. Right. And we would have people truly tell us like, you're not seeing what you saw with your own eyes because they were so entrenched in this idea of like, that's an old wives tale. It can't be true. And I'm like, you know what? I'm not even going to assert that it's true for every kid with autism or anything. I'm going to tell you, this is what works for my kid a hundred percent. And I can show you videos when he was still on dairy after we took him off dairy and in moments where he accidentally got some dairy and the immediate behavioral regressions that came out of that. Yeah. All I know is what works for my kid. That's what I'm going to stick with. (laughs) Yeah. So tell what happened at church with the goldfish. Well, yeah. So that was his first real test of having dairy after having not had it for about maybe a month or two. They rotate through volunteers in the toddler room at church. Mm -hmm. And so for whatever reason, you know, we'd sent the message out, hey, he can't have dairy anymore for his snacks. And this particular teacher hadn't gotten it. And we came to pick him up and he's over in the corner of the room spinning a car in front of his eyes. And immediately we're like, oh, that's not right. That he hasn't done that since we took him off dairy. And he starts running around the room screaming. He decides he's going to run into the sanctuary because there's some guitars there and he wants to smash them. And it was a full on meltdown where we had to carry him out kicking and screaming. And I, as soon as we got in the car, I said, they fed him. And, you know, my husband's always more skeptical than me. And he's like, well, you don't know that. I mean, he's had meltdowns like this before. I was like, not since he went off dairy. I'm telling you they fed him. And so he's like, well, here's our number. Call her. It's fine. And so I called her and she was like, oh, yeah. You know, and she just hadn't even gotten the message. And she was like, yeah, we gave him a little cup of those goldfish crackers. And then he wanted another one and another one. And then after four, we said, that's enough. And he just laid on the floor and cried. I was like, he did not cry. Let's not like be all sweet about this. And I was like, that's exactly what you would expect to see. You know, he had the massive behavioral regressions. As soon as he got a little bit in his system, he was like, more, 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 more. Give me all that you got. And we had about a week of him clearing it out of his system again. And then he was back to not having tantrums. And that was actually a really pivotal moment for my husband because he was sort of on board in the sense of my wife's doing what my wife's doing. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to question it, but whatever. And when he saw that change, not just, oh, he's getting better, but he suddenly got much worse when we brought Mm -hmm. it back in. That was when he's like, okay, this is real and we're on board and no one will ever feed him dairy again. And he like became this warrior of like, anytime we take him to a birthday party, he's just like, okay, he can't eat. Like you understand, you do not put anything in his hands. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's talk about that for a second because I was curious, another author I'm having on in April, he wrote a book called Disability in the Church and he's on the spectrum and just talking about churches and how they relate to anyone with any kind of disability or or who's differently abled. Mm -hmm. What has your experience been with two kids on the spectrum and is it just those kind of things has it been good bad I mean for us we were extremely fortunate we go to a very small church everybody knows everybody mm-hmm. and it really was they were with us through the journey from the beginning okay they saw the improvements and they got what we were doing they didn't necessarily understand what we were doing but they said no we see the difference we absolutely are on board with whatever you tell us. And when he would have a meltdown, they would get it. And they would say, you know, he's having a tough day or whatever. They were 
very, very accommodating and very loving and very open to all of it. And I, you know, it breaks my heart that some people don't have that experience. Mm -hmm. I feel like of all the places that you need to love someone and meet them where they are, church should be it. Well, we haven't had a great history of that in the whole history of the church, though. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) it's it's touch and go. (laughs) So it is heartbreaking. But what can we do for someone who is like, hey, maybe they haven't had any experience with someone in the spectrum before, what would you suggest a mom with, you know, a a kid who you can tell is different Mm -hmm. than mainstream walks into church? I feel like most people's response is to kind of awkwardly not look, I don't know how to handle this. What would you say is a good way for them to approach that situation? Oh, if you're not the mom, the best thing you can do is just walk up and start talking to her like she's a normal person Mm -hmm. because a whole lot of the stigma of bringing the kid who's super difficult in public is everybody looks at you partly like it's your fault and partly like, well, I'm going to let her handle it. You know, I just need to avoid that whole situation. And just coming up and being friendly is a huge boon. Mm -hmm. If you are that mom, I don't think there's any advice I can give you that you haven't already lived through. You know how hard it is to connect with people. And if people are staring at you and wishing that your kid would be less noisy during the service or whatever, I think there's definitely something to be said for finding situations where you're not setting them up to fail. Mm -hmm. There are kids where they simply can't handle being in a whole service. I think it's a bad idea to try to force them to do it for the sake of everybody around me should see what his limits are. And I think there's something to be said for, he can't handle this right now. Let's not push it. Let's say, you know what, we're going to go sit in, a lot of churches have like a side room for nursing mothers where you can hear the sermon, but you're in Mm -hmm. sort of an isolated area. It doesn't do anybody any good to push these kids to their limits. Mm -hmm. The goal is to get them to where they can tolerate it, not where they have just sort of bottled everything up and forced it to be held within until it's too late and then they explode. Mm-hmm. Well, and I don't know if you have heard this statistic and this was years ago, so it might have changed, but I did a study called Perspectives in Grad School, which is like God and missions of the whole history of that. And they talked about unreached people groups, like groups that have never even heard the gospel, don't know that Jesus exists, don't know that name, nothing. And you would think like, oh, it's this like crazy tribe in the Amazon and right. all this stuff. And the most unreached people group in the U.S. is families of kids with disabilities. Yep. I believe that. I mean, they're, they're unreached in so many ways because you do yeah. have to just close yourself into your house. There was a year at least where we basically could not leave the house because anytime we did, it was a massive meltdown. And that's very socially isolating. And like you say, mm-hmm. you, you don't end up getting exposed to all of the things in life, including church, but including friends and, yeah. you know, all sorts of stuff that is really necessary for us as humans. Yeah. Well, and we talk about physical limitation on this podcast too, but one thing I thought when I was reading your book is you're like, you can't travel. Like you wouldn't go to family gatherings or like an hour to, I don't know what your limits were, but you wouldn't go places. Yeah. He couldn't be in the car for more than about 20 or 30 minutes before he'd start getting agitated. And it doesn't matter. You'd say like, oh, you take a break. Like we'll go find a McDonald's play place and you can play on the playscape for a few minutes and then get back in the car. That doesn't work. He needs like a four or five hour break to get over the one hour that you already put him through. And he was like that from a baby. He never liked being in the car. Just the motion of it. He just was not a fan. 
but it, it is very isolating. We would attempt, we tried at one point to take a train because we thought, oh, he loves vehicles. We'll be able to get up and move around. It won't be like being strapped in his car seat. And that was a nightmare. He just ran up and down the aisle, perseverating, saying a lot of echolalia phrases mm-hmm. and trying to climb into random people's laps. It's cute the first time. It is not cute the 20th time and people are getting really sick of us and he's just getting frustrated and getting really tired of the whole thing. And then we're at the place and he's awake all night, every night, cause he won't sleep in a new location. And then we got to do the whole four hour train ride back. And I was just like, that's it. We can't leave the city. Mm-hmm. I was like, I love you, my family, but I'm sorry. We just can't. And it, it, eventually we could again, but you definitely get to a point where people either understand or they don't. But either way, you have to maintain your own sanity and your own home situation. And so if you don't see someone who has a child with disabilities, probably it's because you're not seeing them, not because they're not out there. Statistically, it's almost guaranteed you have someone living on your street with a child with disabilities. Wow. If you don't know who they are, that's because you haven't found a way to, to get in touch with them. Yeah, speak that. A little dose of reality for us. It's depressing, but it is true. Statistically, yeah. you, everybody's out there. You just... They're hiding inside because they can't come out. Yeah. Okay, so let's go through what are some of the ways that you ended up seeing some incredible progression in Paul's behavior when diet and other things. Yeah, well, so the overarching theme of it that encompasses this variety that you have between different kids is it's an autoimmune digestive disorder. And so what that may mean for some kids is horrible constipation. It may mean diarrhea for other kids. It may mean this wide array of food allergy for some kids, but it always comes back to autoimmune and digestive. And so for us, obviously diet was a big part, removing gluten and dairy, but then actually we moved a little further and got onto this very healing diet called the specific carbohydrate diet, Mm -hmm. which actually was designed for children with IBS and Crohn's disease, but it's very, very healing and supportive. And parents with kids with autism had tried it and said, I know it's supposed to be for Crohn's, but it works for us. Mm -hmm. And so we gave it a shot and it worked great. My kids have actually been scoped by a pediatric gastroenterologist who only sees autism kids. That's Mm -hmm. his specialty. And they do a traditional scope, but they also do a pill camera where you swallow it and it goes all the way through your digestive tract, taking a picture every 30 seconds. And it wirelessly transmits that out. And you have basically a movie of your Mm -hmm. entire intestinal lining. And he can say, look, here's the lesions. Here's the damage that is unique to autistic kids. Nobody else has this damage. And then two years later, after you've done a bunch of treatments, including digestive medications, which again are meant for Crohn's disease, but because he has the pictures of the damage, he says it's allowed because we can prove the damage is there. Mm -hmm. Two years later, you do another scope and they're 85, 95% better. The damage is healed. And the doctor that we see in particular does not promise any improvement in the autism symptoms. He says, I'm a gastroenterologist. What I treat is the gastrointestinal disease. Do the vast majority of my patients show improvement in their symptoms when we treat their digestive disease? Absolutely. But Mm -hmm. that's not my specialty. I can't promise that. All I fix is the digestive disease. But it works. And that's Mm -hmm. what every parent says is when you fix the digestive damage, you solve a lot of the behavioral problems, especially. Because one of the things you have to think about as well is, like we talked about earlier, these kids don't feel pain the same way we do. Mm -hmm. And so if they are in pain, they don't know how to talk about it. And they don't know how to say, hey, wait, this isn't normal because they felt this way their entire lives. 
Well, and the strep, like you didn't know he had this crazy thing until he's screaming on your lap and you look in his throat and see it's swollen, right? Yeah. And that's part of the autoimmune thing. So much later in our journey, my son had a strep infection in his throat and he had it for probably nine months because that's how long the behavioral problems were. Mm -hmm. But he didn't have a fever. He didn't have any other indication of illness because his immune system was not reacting properly. Mm -hmm. And in fact, that's one of the reasons why the strep stayed for so long was his body was not recognizing it as an intruder. It was just saying, yeah, that's allowed to be there. And so he wasn't getting a fever. He wasn't getting any of the signs of illness that are actually your body telling you, hey, I'm fighting something. There's something going wrong here. His immune system didn't recognize that. And he was in horrible pain for probably nine months. And we were trying to figure out what is this behavioral thing? What is going on? We've definitely seen a regression. He hasn't eaten any gluten and dairy. We're not sure what's going on. And like you said, it wasn't until he happened to flop backwards in the middle of a tantrum and scream upward at me. And I happened to see straight down his throat and his tonsils were huge. And I was like, oh, we never thought to look inside his mouth before. Mm -hmm. You know, immediately took him to the doctor and they were like, oh yeah, he's got strep. Have some antibiotics. And within a day of taking the antibiotics, all the behavior's gone. He's just like, finally, I'm not in horrible agony. But he never said to us, mommy, my throat hurts. That was just not something he was capable of. All he knew how to do was express in the way he could that he was not happy. Yeah. And that's something that I think actually persisted even past the point where he was clearly communicating. Talking about pain is something that was one of the last pieces to fall into place for him. Even when he could communicate other things, there was a point where he had a stomach illness and he was acting really weird. And I said, you know, does anything hurt? And he said, no. I said, okay, we're going to go body part by body part. And I want you to really think about each body part as we go. And I would touch his foot. And I was like, does this part hurt? And he's like, no. And I go, you know, on his leg and his arm and his shoulder. And I touched his stomach and I said, does this part hurt? And he goes, maybe. And we ended up in the ER because what it turned out he had was called an intussusception, which is a horribly painful thing. And they, you know, did a CT scan on him and they're like, oh yeah, this explains he's in terrible pain. Which could be fatal, right? Yeah. If you don't get it corrected, it could be. Yeah. <laughs> and he's like, maybe it hurts. Yeah. He's like, I don't, I don't want to commit to that. Like, I just, I don't want to talk about this. Can you just leave me alone? I was like, no, I can't leave you alone because you're clearly in distress. We need to figure out what this is. Mm -hmm. Even in that doctor's appointment where at the ER, where we're, you know, doing the triage and everything. And I actually thought at the time, I thought he might have appendicitis. That was my working theory going in. And I told them all the symptoms and say, you know, he's in pain, this and that. And they were like, okay, well, go ahead and stand up, buddy. Can you jump up and down for me? And he jumped and he kind of winced a little bit. And they're like, okay, go ahead and do it again. And he jumped again. And he goes, you know, I don't think it's probably that bad because most kids, if they're in a lot of pain, if you tell them to jump up and down again, they'll say no. And I was like, um, mm -mm, no. You cannot say my son is obedient to a T when he can be. Mm -hmm. He would absolutely do whatever you said, regardless of the pain that it caused him. Just you have to scan him. And ultimately they did. And they were like, oh, yeah, he has this horrible thing going on. It's really tough as well. As you start getting better, you start becoming less obviously autistic. Hmm. Then you have people going like, he's nerdy like a computer programmer. He doesn't have autism. It's like, no, he really still has issues. Mm -hmm they're invisible. You're not necessarily going to see that he's getting overwhelmed by these sensory things or that he's yeah. struggling with whatever until it breaks. And then you say, oh, 
now he's melting down in the middle of the classroom for no reason. Yeah, which we had fun emails back and forth figuring things out. Yep. Which is so interesting, right? Because it was like, I mean, he made like, I don't know, 98, 99s in my class, but it was the games that he didn't have control over or... I mean, they didn't matter at all, right? Which I get. I mean, as I don't get that, but like I have irrational- As a competitive person. Yeah. (laughs) Like things with that. But yeah. And so I also was thinking while you're talking, someone has said that the gut is basically like a second brain. Mm -hmm. And the more studies they do on that, the more they've confirmed it. They've now connected the gut to Parkinson's and Alzheimer's and a number of other things. Depression has absolutely been connected to gut bacteria. The more they study it, the more they're realizing it really is- an entirely second brain. The number one place you have serotonin in your body is not your brain, it's in your gut. Hmm. And wow. so it yeah. definitely is an area of study that is starting to get attention. And yet, even then, you can talk about the gut for depression. You can talk about the gut for Parkinson's. But the minute you start talking about the gut for autism, people throw up a wall hmm. and they say, no, that's those crazy moms who do those crazy stuff with their kids. Mm-hmm. That's not true. We're, we're simply not going to allow a connection to be talked about between the gut and autism, even though they'll talk about the gut and a dozen other diseases. Hmm. Yeah. And I, again, have had this really big food revolution. And it's fascinating to me because now that I have almost all this processed stuff gone, it's like I'll eat something and it'll really mess me up. Whereas I'm like, I could eat this all at the time five years ago and it never bothered me. But I'm like, would I rather be used to it and not living as healthy or, and so you had something really similar happen with gluten. And then what did that lead to? Yeah. Well, so like I said, we had to get all the gluten and dairy out of the house completely because he could hunt it. He could drag a chair over. He could get on top of the refrigerator. There was no place you could hide it in the house where he wouldn't find it. And so I was staying at home with him and my daughter all day long. So I effectively gave up gluten and dairy as well, just because we had to get rid of it. And about three or four months in, we were having a family reunion at my house because we couldn't travel anywhere, but I said, you're welcome to come here. (laughs) And he had gotten to the point where he wasn't grabby. He wasn't trying to hunt it down. He wasn't taking it off other people's plates. I said, you know, I know that we can have regular hamburger buns in the house to serve to my relatives because they're not going to want to eat gluten-free buns. Like even now, gluten-free buns do taste different. And back then there were not nearly as many options. They just were not any good. Mm -hmm. And you can get used to them and it's fine. But nowadays it's so much better. But anyway, so I had regular buns in the house. I was making his gluten-free bun. I was making regular ones for them. And I had to decide, well, which one am I going to eat? Because I've been eating gluten-free buns with him for three months. But you know what? They're expensive. I've got these other ones. They're going to go in the garbage as soon as these people leave because we're not keeping them in the house. So I'll go ahead and eat one of these. And I immediately felt so nauseous and got horribly ill. And I had all sorts of unspeakable symptoms for the rest of the night. Mm -hmm. And it was sort of a wake-up call for me because I had this family history of colon cancer. And one of the things about colon cancer is that if you have celiac disease, and it goes untreated. You just keep eating gluten your whole life, either because you say, screw it, I'm going to, or because you say they've never been diagnosed. If you keep eating gluten and you have celiac, ultimately it almost always results in colon cancer. Hmm. I had a maternal grandmother, I had a paternal uncle, and then I had a cousin all on the same side of the family. And the cousin was only 37 and they all got colon cancer. And I even had this weird childhood connection because my grandmother who died from it 
died when my father was 12. I never got to meet her. And so he had at some point when I was very young told me, oh yeah, that's a picture of your grandmother. You never met her because she died when I was just, you know, a little boy. And he was explaining she had died of colon cancer. And as a weird young child, which I was, I just sort of said, I think I'm going to die of it someday too. And my dad was like, okay, we're going to just move on from this creepy thing you just said. (laughs) But it was a weird, like, I just remember being that age and thinking, I've heard that diseases skip generations. And if she had it and my dad doesn't, then I'll, you know, I don't know. I just felt like, I felt as a child that it was going to happen. And it had always just sort of stuck in the back of my brain. And I had this sort of revelation at the moment that I ate this hamburger where I got horribly ill. And I was like, oh man, my grandmother probably had celiac and kept eating gluten because she didn't know. And my uncle probably had celiac. And in fact, because he had watched his mother go through this horrible chemo and die anyway, he said, I'm not going the traditional route. I'm going to go to these just alternative cancer centers. Mm -hmm. And he changed his entire diet. And he did a whole bunch of other kind of holistic treatments. Mm -hmm. And they had told him he would die within six months. And he ended up living another six years and then dying of something completely unrelated. Wow. And he even after he was fully in remission and he went back to his original oncologist, he was like, can I get in there and see, like, can we just do another scope? And he was like, no, you <laughs> told me I was going to die. And you told me these are the only things, you know, I got to go through radiation and, and chemotherapy and everything. And this is not to poop on radiation and chemotherapy. Mm-hmm. I know people who have had their lives saved by that, Yeah, but it was a question of what happened when he did change his diet. Mm-hmm. He got dramatically better. And that was something for him that was undeniable. And, you know, so I'm putting all these pieces together and I started to sort of make this narrative in my head because I'm a storyteller and that's what I do Mm -hmm. of like, what if my son's autism saved my life? Mm -hmm. Like, what if I was supposed to die of colon cancer when my kids were 12, just like my dad's mom did? And the only reason I even figured out that I have a problem with gluten was because I had to go off it because of my son. Mm -hmm. Who's to say whether that's true? I don't claim to know God's plan or any of that. It is certainly possible And it gives you at least an opportunity for a positive perspective on what Mm -hmm. is ultimately a really difficult situation. And I I know a lot of other moms as well who they took their kids gluten-free and they ended up going gluten-free and discovering that they too had a problem with it. That's a risk factor for your child being on the spectrum, right? Yes. If you have celiac disease, you are four times more likely to have an autistic child, Mm -hmm. which, you know, you tell people that and they're like, what's the connection? I'm like, if you understood, you would see how clear the connection is. Like, this is a really clear connection. That's what led to you discovering that you are on the spectrum as well, right? Yeah. Like, it's... It's tricky because it's almost in vogue now to claim that you're on the spectrum. And that can get kind of frustrating because it leads to this misperception of people going like, oh, he's got autism, like he's awkward at parties. And I'm like, no, he's got autism in the can't function in public kind of autism. Mm -hmm. And there is a difference. Yeah. I will tell you this. I had at least two different people when we were sort of telling everybody, hey, this is our new reality, whatever. My son has autism. And they said, oh, congratulations. And I was like, excuse me? And they were like, well, because it means he'll be good at math, right? And I was like, no, it means he might be dependent on us for the rest of his life. Like, This is not the same thing that it shows you in the media. But yes, there is a mild end of the spectrum. And I definitely have a lot of those borderline traits. I don't look at people's eyes, never have, find it very uncomfortable. And frankly, it doesn't make any logical sense. The sound (laughs) is coming out of their mouth. Why wouldn't you look at their mouth? Like that just, it's never made sense to me to look at people's eyes. I love that just other stuff. Like I have some sensory stuff. I'm weird about shoes. I'm weird about sleeves. It's all mild. 
I've fully functioning. I've mm-hmm. managed my whole life. Yeah. But as we're going through this with my son, you know, and I'm telling my mom about like, oh, well, this is how we know. And she's like, uh-huh. Yep. Yep. Yeah. No, that, that sounds familiar. Yep. Okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and she clearly is, you know, thinking back to experiences of my childhood where I was not an easy child either. I know this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I was not quite so difficult that the school system, you know, red flagged me, mm-hmm. but it was enough that my mom was like, oh yeah, no, I remember what a yeah. pain you were. <laughs> yeah. Well, so it's so interesting because it does seem like there are some genetic links. And I mean, if you've made it this far in the episode, maybe you're at least curious and listening. So I do want to bring up one more controversial thing, which is just what happened with Marie and what did you notice with, and I know you have, it's like two different stories in the book for a reason because they're different but I have heard things since this and it seems like you can't just ignore all these people having this experience so what was that right so you're talking about the dirty word of vaccines Mm -hmm. and it is something that everyone is hyper aware of especially in the autism community it's the first thing when you meet a parent who has a child with autism you ask each other well what do you think caused it because there's two camps and everybody wants to know what camp are you in so we know what we can and cannot talk about it. Because it, it's highly polarizing. People yep. get very, very emotionally involved on both sides. Yeah. And that's very understandable. Because on the one hand, you're saying, oh, well, you're killing babies. You say, oh, well, you're brain damaging babies. It's very hard to have a middle ground in that conversation. <laughs> For us, personally, I can say with absolute certainty, my daughter's regression started the day she got her MMR. We had one kid on the spectrum and one kid who was developing normally because they're less than two years apart. And he had been diagnosed and we were like, oh, well, thank goodness we have an easy child so we can focus as much as we need to on him. And she went in for her 12-month checkup. She got her shot. That night, she got a high fever and her body was covered in hives. The next morning she woke up, she was having diarrhea and it didn't stop for two years. And that that was the beginning of her digestive disease. And I don't claim that it 100% caused it out of nothing. Mm -hmm. And I know for sure my son was already having symptoms from day one. Mm -hmm. But I will say that it is a known thing that people with severe autoimmune disease don't get vaccines. They're advised by their doctors. And when you hear people say, you need to get it so that we can protect the people who can't, that's who they're talking about, is people with severe autoimmune disease. Because if your immune system is already going haywire, overloading it with a vaccine, stimulating it in any way is not going to help. It's going to make your autoimmune disease worse. And you probably aren't even going to get immunity out of it anyway. Mm -hmm. And the only disconnect is whether autism is an autoimmune disease. Mm -hmm. Because if autism is an autoimmune disease, it's already a given that kids on the spectrum should not have vaccines because it will make their symptoms worse. And if you can make that connection, then everything comes together. And that's one of the reasons why they don't want to talk about digestive disease and autism, because that makes it look autoimmune. And when you talk about autoimmune symptoms in kids with autism, that makes it look autoimmune. And there's just become this really hard line of you cannot talk about vaccines and autism. Hmm. And it makes it really tough. Even if you're saying to a doctor, you know what, I'm not even trying to get into that debate. I'm just saying my kid has severe allergies. I'd like to get them treated. And the doctor literally says, I see he has an autism diagnosis. He doesn't have allergies. And you're like, what are you talking about? It is possible to have these multiple symptoms. I'm not trying to get into any kind of cause debate with you. I'm just trying to get my kid treated for literal symptoms that I can show you. I brought in a diaper full of diarrhea to our pediatrician 
and showed it Commitment. to her because, because she was telling me yeah. he doesn't have diarrhea. And I'm like, I know what it looks like. I'm not an idiot. Look. It. Yeah. And even then she was just like, well, you know, you might want to go see a gastroenterologist. She was still just like punting it. She was like, I'm not, you know, and I was like, well, do you have someone to refer us to? She's like, you know, I'm not, I'm not really aware of anything. I'm like, you are such a liar because I know if I came in with a kid who wasn't on the spectrum and said, he's having diarrhea every day, you would say, oh man, we need to run some tests for Crohn's. We need to look at all of these accepted diseases that don't have a stigma around them. Yeah. And it's understandable that they're scared because yeah. doctors have had their medical licenses yanked for less. Yep. And I get it that they're scared, but it also is really difficult to be on the other side of that and saying, you're yeah. too afraid to help me. And I'm just trying to get my kid better. Very complicated. It is. It is very complicated. Yeah. Okay. I hate that we're coming up here, but I do want to ask, how are your two kids doing now? Because we're almost at an hour and I know there's way more. People can just go get the book and read. If this has sparked your curiosity, you're like, oh, I, I want to learn more. I want to see. Buy the book. I'll have the link in the show notes. But with all the things that you did, how are they doing now? They're in full remission. And that's the truth. And I prefer the word remission over recovery for sure, because it is an ongoing disease. You know, if you have a peanut allergy and you don't eat peanuts and you have no allergy symptoms, it doesn't mean that you don't have an allergy anymore. It just means you're not exposing yourself to those triggers. So their autoimmune disease, it's possible it'll get better over time. I consider it a lifelong thing. They're going to have to stay on their diet and probably some of their medications for the rest of their lives. But the great news is it worked. Like yeah. they are fully mainstream. They've both been fully mainstream since kindergarten. They haven't had any speech therapy since maybe first or second grade. Mm -hmm. You know, they have some anxiety. That's about the only symptom that really anybody could kind of look at and say that's slightly not normal. But otherwise, I mean, they have friends. They fully interact in class. A lot of kids have all kinds of other things, right, that they deal with too. So exactly, but yeah, I mean, they're both they're both fully engaged. They're what they they call indistinguishable from their peers. Mm -hmm. And there's this temptation for a lot of people to say, like, oh, well, that's how they would have ended up anyway. You know, you you just sort of did this stuff. But some kids get to where they're not so severe as they get older. And I would simply argue that those kids are not diagnosed at two and a half. Those are the kids who maybe get diagnosed at five when their kindergarten teacher says, you know, there's maybe some behavioral problems. Mm -hmm. My kids were diagnosed very, very early because they were both severe. And more importantly, I can bring the symptoms back. Like if they accidentally eat the wrong thing, if we run out of a medication and can't get the prescription refilled for a week, we start to see the regression again. Yeah. And it's, it's a maintenance thing. And at any point, especially if they get sick, if they're in pain, sometimes you start to see a little bit of a, a breaking through. Does that scare them? I mean, because they're old enough at this point where they can kind of see that in themselves. Yeah. Right. I mean, I, I don't think, I don't know if it scares them. I've never asked them that. That's an interesting question. I mean, they both definitely know that they have autism. Mm -hmm. It was an unusual way that my son actually found out the ER trip that I mentioned where he had the intussusception. You know, I'm giving them information. I'm scared at this point because they're like, this is a life-threatening thing. We need to monitor mm -hmm. whatever. And a couple of weeks later, we had been spending time with a friend of mine who has a very severe teenager. And my son asked for the first time, well, why does he do that? Why does he kind of go wild like that? And I was like, oh, well, because he has autism and this and that. And he said, but when I was in the hospital, you told the doctor I had autism. And I was like, oh, 
I guess we're having this conversation now because we'd never talked about it. He knew he had digestive disease. He knew, oh, okay, I can't eat these things because my stomach hurts, but we'd never really talked about the cognitive aspect of it. Mm-hmm. And he really embraced it. He'll tell anybody. Mm-hmm. He'll walk up and be like, hi, I have autism. And let me, you know, yeah. tell you why it's okay and why I can eat these foods and not eat those foods. And he's very talkative and social. My daughter's a little more reticent about it. She will tell you, but she has to get to know you first. But that's sort of how she is with everything. She's just a little more wary of strangers. And her process was pretty opposite. It's like therapy was a big deal for her, right? Yeah. Yeah. She had a lot more deficits in certainly speech. She was nonverbal and just in caring. I would say the big difference between the two of them is my son has always cared so much and it causes problems when he cares too much and gets Mm -hmm. way too involved in things that just don't need that big of an emotional commitment. But her thing has always been, I'm going to shut down. I am not interested in any of this. I don't need to try. I don't want to do any of this. And so it's been a completely separate journey for her. Like you said, I tell their stories separately in the book because they really are so completely different. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, they both had a speech delay. It's just that he used echolalia and she chose not to talk at all. Mm-hmm. And there's overlap even when it manifests so differently. Yeah. And for her, we ended up finding a therapy situation that worked really well. It was a small group thing where she wasn't doing a one-on-one therapy with the therapist. She was in a room with two other kids and a therapist, and the therapist was teaching the other kid. And she could watch that from a distance and go, oh, okay, I get it. And then she could do it. But anytime you tried to like directly interact with her, she was like, nope, this is too much. I'm out. And so for her, that anxiety manifested as stay away from me. Whereas for him, the anxiety is like, I need to get my hands in this right now. Like I need to be all over this thing. Yeah. Some people learn languages that way too, as a Spanish teacher, that they'll just sit there and listen for like three years. And then like, once they start producing sentences, it's perfect. Then they get it. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. So one thing I want to ask as we're wrapping up is if there's someone listening right now, what would be your encouragement pep up talk when they're just like, Jennifer, I can't deny some of the things you're saying that makes a little bit too much eerie sense to me, but I can't do this. I can't do what you did. It's just not realistic. I think the biggest thing is just is to start small. It's very tempting to look at, you know, my kids are 14 and 12 now. And look at the whole journey and be like, oh, I can't do 10 years of this. But you don't have to start with everything. And you don't have to start with the whole journey ahead of you. If you can just say, you know what, we're going to try one thing and see what happens. Because I have to tell you, there were a lot of times where I thought, I can't do this. And then my son would speak to me in a way that he'd never done before. Or he would, have a, he would go to a birthday party and not have a meltdown. You know, and just those moments of like, oh man, this is what we're working for. And this is what it could be. And it's incredibly motivating in ways that you didn't think you had that that reserve of motivation in you. You will find it when you start to see your kid improve. You just got to try it. Just try one thing and see what happens. And so question, now you say, well, they're both in full remission. What if you had tried all this stuff and it hadn't have worked for their cognitive ability. Well, it's really fascinating because it didn't work for my daughter for a long time. And it's one of the reasons why I think that if I hadn't had the experience with my son, I very well might have given up on my daughter because he's extreme. 
Everything about him is extreme. When you give him something that works, he's amazing. When you give him something that it doesn't work, he is on the floor letting you know that it did not work. Whereas with her, it's much, the waves are much smaller. And so you see this slow progression over time and you do eventually get to a point where you see a regression when she eats the wrong thing. But it was probably two years of dietary stuff before we really started to see her open up. And there were other elements to it for her. She had some infections that we didn't know about. And until we cleared out the infections, the digestive stuff, it was like sort of helping in the background, but Mm -hmm. it wasn't the biggest problem. And so there definitely can be times where it's like, well, I gave up gluten for a week and I didn't see a difference. And I would say you really got to commit to longer than that because it can take longer. Mm -hmm. And it's hard to know what to say to motivate other people because other yeah. everybody has their own motivation. Right. But what you said that I, I loved is you said, well, even if we had only fixed their gut and not their brain, would that not have been worth it? Yeah, for sure. Because fundamentally, know? these kids are sick and in pain. And even if my kid never learns to talk, I don't want her to be in pain. Yeah. That's awful. Like you said, even if we'd only fixed their gut, it would have been worth it. And they definitely had gut disease. If you go to a pediatric gastroenterologist, they'll find it. but no one will tell you to go. You have to go. Do you still have your website that people can get to and everything for the, is it GFCF? Lady. Yeah. 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 GFCFlady.com. Yeah. I haven't updated it in a long time, but there's probably about 300 recipes up there that are all, all gluten and dairy free. And there's photos because part of the deal is I honestly, I'm the worst person in the world to have had to commit to like an all from scratch diet for my children. Mm -hmm. I hate cooking. I don't enjoy food. Like I'll eat it because it keeps me alive, but I'm not one of those people who's like, oh, gourmet. I'm like, no, am I hungry anymore? Great. It did its job. And and when I was, you know, sort of coming to grips with this idea of I'm going to have to cook for real for basically ever. And I needed a way to kind of motivate myself. And so I ended up creating this cooking website because it turned it into a job. It was something where I could say, oh, look, here I have something permanent, right? You cook a meal and people eat it and it's gone. You don't have any evidence that it ever existed. Mm -hmm. But if I take these pictures and I write up the experience and I put the recipe out there, that makes it, it it made it feel more worthwhile to me. And other people may have other things that motivate them. But for me, that was, I had to get it up in writing. And yeah, it's all still up there. I actually, I kind of glanced at it but I want to go look at some of the recipes because I eat similarly so yeah I might be able to find some new recipes over there yeah okay is there anything that we have not covered or something burning on your mind that I did not say the right question that you would like to share I don't know I think my overall takeaway message for people who have a kid on the spectrum is it will get easier Mm -hmm. if you start trying these things I know it seems really hard now but you get into it and it does get easier for sure. And I would say for people who don't have a kid on the spectrum, cut them some slack because it is way harder than it looks. You know, it's, it's easy for you as the one who doesn't have to cook like this to be like, I heard on this podcast, you should totally just upend your lifestyle and put your kid Mm -hmm. on this diet. It is harder. There were days where I cried all day long and it doesn't mean that it's easy. It also doesn't mean that it's not worth doing. It is worth doing, but support them where you can and don't be judgmental if they're having a bad day of it. Maybe we could make a meal that is in that guidelines and bring it to them. Absolutely. Anyone who ever wanted to bring me food, I was, they were my, my new best friend. Yeah. So if you're going to suggest the podcast, maybe you're like, hey, 
I'll bring you a meal too. Go to the website, make something on there and bring it to them. And that's, that's the nicest thing you can do for anyone who's going through this. Yeah, I love that. Thank you so much for doing this, Jennifer. Well, thank you for having me. I love your podcast. It's fantastic. Thank you so much for letting us be in your ears for the past hour. Please know that I do not take that for granted and I am honored that you are here. If you enjoyed this conversation with Jennifer, please check out her book and her website. I've linked those in the show notes. And then join us next week, both on Monday and Thursday. The episode relating to autism is going to be on Thursday, a little bonus for you, because Monday is the anniversary of the Oklahoma City bombing, one of the most tragic events in the U.S.'s history. One of the last survivors pulled from the rubble, Amy Downs, is going to be here with us on Monday sharing her testimony. So you don't want to miss that. We'll see you on Monday. Monday and Thursday. Have a great week.